This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Okay, I know it might come as a big surprise, but not all therapists are evil. In fact, now more than ever, there are accessible, effective ways to work on yourself, whether it's dealing with stress, anxiety, or just getting closer to achieving your goals. That's where BetterHelp Therapy comes in. With access to licensed professional therapy from the comfort of your own space, BetterHelp lets you, and yes, I mean you, make the progress you've always been wanting to make. Its online service is intentionally designed to be extremely accommodating. So no matter the stage of life you're in or where you are in the world, BetterHelp can be a great resource. BetterHelp allows you to set your own preferences, anything from type of therapy to therapist specializations, and they will match you with a therapist that best fits what you're looking for. But don't worry if you don't feel satisfied with the first therapist you're matched with. BetterHelp offers you the option to switch if you don't get that perfect fit on the first try. Want weekly meetings on BetterHelp's secure platform? They got you covered. Looking for the option to message your counselor 24-7? No problem. Whatever you're working towards, BetterHelp can, well, help. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and listeners of The Eyes get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash the eyes. That's betterhelp.com slash t-h-e-e-y-e-s. Thank you for listening. Let's get to the show. A man stares dreary-eyed into the deep gray waters of the ocean. The waves crash over the hull of the boat as he drifts into a half-sleep. He works all day hauling in salmon, and today's his steering shift. He's tired, so he blames the first screech on his foggy brain and the howling wind. One might think that as long as you're on board the ship, you're safe from the dangers of the sea. Giant icebergs, sharp freezing waters, and lurking creatures can't reach you when you're above deck. But tonight, the sailors would be better off in the depths of the ocean than the numbing, swaying presence of the boat. Not the boat specifically, but what's on it. The man steering the boat hears it again, and now he's paying attention. A howl, like a broken violin, reaches into the cabin and through the muggy, cold air. The man forces his mind awake, now aware of the subtle sound ringing from around the corners of the lonely boat at sea. His conscious mind comes to the same conclusion as his unconscious one. It's just the wind, he thinks. He adjusts the path of the ship and continues to stare out at sea. The waves are like apprehensive hands, dissolving as they breach over the hull. Then, The sound comes again, this time much clearer, like a calculated scream. The man gets up from his seat to check the door to the cabin. It might just be the wind seeping through a crack in the door. He approaches the door, unscrews the latch, and the middle door swings open. The man yells outside to any crew members on deck. No response. They must all be inside. He relatches the door and sits back down into the pilot's seat. Minutes go by. The man dutifully steers the ship over crest after crest. It's eerily silent. And then, footsteps. Someone's in the hallway to the stairwell. The man calls to whoever's passing by, asking if they heard the screeching noise. He doesn't recognize the voice that responds. 
Maybe it's just the muffling of the door or the droning sound of the ocean. But he isn't able to put a voice to a name when it says that no, it hadn't heard a screeching voice. The man continues to steer. Two of the five crewmates walk out on deck below him to secure some crates, and then another one joins them. Mark, Jack, and Harry. That means Bill is the one in the hallway behind him. The man yells Bill's name. There's no response. He doesn't have time to get up and look for him, though, because the wind begins to screech again. Miraculously, the door to the upper deck blows open and a shrill scream emanates from just around the corner. The man bolts up, closes the door, and the scream stops. How could the door have opened? He was sure he latched it shut last time. He makes sure the door is fully latched this time and goes back to his chair. He looks down to the deck to see all four of his crewmates hauling one big crate into its place. The man corrects the ship after a large wave rocks it, and the crew continues to work on the drenched, frigid deck. The man stares out to the ocean again. It's like it swallows up light, knowledge, anything that can capsize it will consume, he thinks. Then, he hears footsteps behind him again. Bill, he calls out. No response. He was sure someone was there. He heard the hallway door open and someone passed behind him. Then, he looks out to the deck. He counts four crew members all securing crates and cargo. And then they look up at him, some pointing and others just staring quizzically. And then the man realizes something. There's only five of them aboard the ship. Who's behind him? He turns around and walks apprehensively to the door that leads to the hallway. He hears no footsteps, no doors opening, nothing. Then, he hears a scream, this time from the deck. It wasn't like the other screeches. This time, it was human. He runs over to the window. Ten feet below him on the deck lies all four of his crew members, drenched in water and lying prone on the ground. Dark, inky black water seeps from their clothes and into the wooden planks of the deck. Then, he realizes, they're not drenched with water. They're drenched with blood. Before he can respond, or even think, he hears a clank behind him. Shivers run down his spine, and footsteps run down the hall. They don't belong to someone he knows. He gets up, shaking, holding his flashlight as a weapon. The footsteps fade away, then they're replaced by the lull of the rain. Then to his right, he hears a screech. It's like the others, except when he turns, he knows what's been making it. It's a creature, with its mouth open wide and a gaping smile, the sound emanating from its gory jaws. It opens the door and steps inside the cabin, inky red dripping from its clothes. The man steps back, but he has nowhere to go. He'll be consumed by this creature that he knows is not a man. It has every feature of a man. Stubby legs, barrel chest, and fisherman's clothes, but that doesn't matter. No man could have a smile so melted, so twisted and dissolved. And no man could have eyes that move that fast.
Sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. I feel sometimes like my only friend is this city that I live in. Is there no one out there who thinks like I do? It's like I'm at this by myself, just a city to see my good deeds. I've seen things I can't unsee. I just don't want to feel like I did that day, the day I saw the bodies for the first time. Sometimes I think about who I'm solving this case for. It's not for the Luna brothers, obviously. I don't think it's for their sister, either, who may or may not be involved. I think it's just for the city. For the people that can't fend for themselves. Who else is going to fight this unrest, this corruption? Yesterday, I learned that Dr. Klein, the coroner for my department, was in on something that had to do with the Luna case. I searched Good Life Butcher and discovered a strange connection between the pigs at Good Life, the Luna murders, and the Prosperity Psychological Institute. It would only be a matter of time until I discovered what was really going on here. My plan was to report what I'd found at Good Life to Chief, and then take a look inside Prosperity Psychological Institute. Until I heard the news. Here's Sandy's description of the incident. Last night, she and her boyfriend were on a walk in Norwich County when they stopped by a fence to inspect a suspicious event. They saw a hunched figure on the side of the road, ripping out what looked like an animal carcass of some sort. They got closer to observe the scene, shining their lights on what they thought was a middle-aged man wearing nothing but overalls, who was, and I quote, eating a pig. The couple yelled for the man, who looked up, stared at them, and started, and I quote again, speaking words that they could not understand. Here's what Sandy said. I thought it was like a French or Spanish with a really heavy accent, but he just kept making sounds over and over again, and his mouth was hanging open like it was made of soggy bread. He jumped at us, and we ran. We looked back to see him running the opposite direction. We didn't chase him. He's a crazy person. That's what he is. I just didn't know what to do, you know? After the Norwich police were called, they identified the scene of the crime and apprehended the man two miles down the road on the corner of Leland and Way. The pig carcass was identified as one belonging to Norman Fisher, the farmer responsible for an incident earlier this week. The man, identified as Daryl Harmon of Norwich County, was revealed to have been a patient at the Prosperity Psychological Institute. Head doctor Isabel Groff reported that the patient had been under the care of the institute undergoing psychological evaluations for Alzheimer's when he escaped. Harmon was put back in the care of Prosperity Institute hours after the incident. No comment has been made about his physical appearance. More on that later. Gosh, what is happening here? Two murders, a pig attack, and then this? I'm glad it wasn't some full-blown psycho attack, but all things considered it totally could have been. I rerouted my maps and headed to the crime scene. If I was lucky, there still would be something to inspect. When I got there, it was like every other farm road, just miles of farmland dotted with the occasional farmhouse, so the yellow tape stood out like a sore thumb. There were two Norwich department cops there at the scene and a couple of investigators searching the grounds, but they let me in when I showed them my badge. They told me that I was free to look around, but they'd taken all the evidence and there wasn't much to look for. I walked over to the side of the road near a clearing of trampled grass. This was where the man had the pig. They were right. There were obviously no pieces of evidence to look for, other than small blotches of black tar where the man had been. This probably didn't stand out to the other investigators, 
because to a regular eye, it just seemed like refuse or garbage leakage that hadn't been cleaned up. To me, though, I knew that the tar was the same stuff that was on the bodies of Carlos and Felix Luna. I needed to dig deeper into this tar and the bodies. This wasn't just a murder case. It wasn't about some odd accidents that might have been connected. If it really was the pigs that killed the brothers, why the tar? No, this case wasn't about the pigs at all. I had a feeling that the tar would lead me to where I needed to be. And right then, I knew that I needed to be at Prosperity Psychological Institute. I set the maps to the Institute. I couldn't raise suspicion, but I had to search as much as I could for anything connecting to my case. The Institute was on the outskirts of Almiston, past a residential area. Fir trees lined the driveway, and the dark gray sky loomed over the newly paved road. The Institute was founded earlier in the year, but, apparently, the quality of care brought people from around the state looking for a mental sanctuary. I pulled up to the one-story white building, lined with short, clean trim bushes and birch saplings. There was a small parking lot to the right of the entrance, but most of the building was surrounded by the woods. I parked in the side lot and headed to the front door. The sign in the front said, Prosperity Psychological Institute. More than just your rehabilitation. I walked through the nice glass door, and a receptionist looked up from her desk and greeted me with a smile. Welcome to Prosperity Psychological Institute. My name's Jeanette. Do you have an appointment? She asked. No, my name's Richard Riley. I, uh, my brother was thinking about coming here. I'm just checking it out for him. Is there any way I could get a tour of the place? It was a complete lie, but <laughs> how was she going to know that? My goal in the Institute was to see as many rooms and happenings as possible. If anything stood out as unordinary or weird, I'd know I was onto something. Yeah, Jeanette said, hesitating. But if your brother's looking to come here, I think he'd get a more complete idea of the place if he came here himself. If you could give me his name and number, we could give him a call and schedule an appointment. This was not the way I wanted this to go. If I wanted to get the most out of this tour, I had to play this part. I obviously didn't actually have a brother, so I was going to have to stick with it. No, I said. It was actually my idea for him to come here. He's needed some help, and I just wanted to give him some good options. Well, okay then, she said. Here at Prosperity, we believe that a healthy mind comes with a healthy body, so we don't allow any artificial sugars or sweeteners in our facility. We also have a strict privacy policy, so we store all iPhones and other devices in our safe room to protect our patients. We're going to have to store any devices or food you have in our secure containers over here before you enter the main building. She led me to a small chute in the wall, and I reluctantly dropped my phone in. I'd planned on taking pictures if anything seemed out of the ordinary, but that plan was now down the drain. She led me to a big door in the middle of the room. The same phrase written on the sign at the front entrance was written above the door. More than just your rehabilitation. I wondered what that truly meant. The door opened with the press of a button on the wall, and we walked into a room that was surprisingly cozy. There were a few people sitting by a large open fireplace drinking from white cups on a white sofa. Others were playing chess and checkers on clear tables near what I assume was the cafeteria. It seemed at first like more of a senior home than a rehabilitation center. But out of the 30 or so people in the complex, only a few of them looked older. 
The place looked exactly as I imagined. So far, so good. So this is the main complex, Jeanette said. To the left of us, we have the patient quarters, and to the right, we have the cafeteria. Our patients stay anywhere from a week to three months here, where we do daily counseling and mental checkups with our trained professionals. She nodded as we passed two people in black doctor's gowns with the Prosperity logo emblazoned on the front pocket. We're known in the psychology world not just because of our world-class care, but because of our patient-supported experiments. We record and analyze reactions to different stimuli based on the patient's condition to fully understand the ways we can treat them best. Our innovations have helped many people get back on their feet and back to their normal lives. Whatever your brother is going through, we've probably seen it countless times here at Prosperity. We know we can help. We walked to the cafeteria, where she told me something about their four-star dining, but I wasn't listening. I noticed a small canister attached to the wall, with a nozzle attached to the side. It looked like a fire extinguisher, but it definitely wasn't. There was a clear strip of glass in the side of the cylinder, and I could see what was some sort of black liquid. What's that? I asked Jeanette, curious of what she might say. Oh, uh, that's, uh, that's just an extinguisher. It's, uh, one of the newer ones. It's supposed to set out fires without causing property damage. The stuff in here is expensive. <laughs> she laughed, but I could tell it was fake. It was definitely not a fire extinguisher. Jeanette turned to one of the doctors, who told her something I couldn't hear. Then she pointed to the exit. Thank you for coming, Mr. Riley. I gotta cut the tour short. We have other things to sort out. But I'm sure you saw enough to decide if the Institute is right for your brother. If you could see yourself out, that would be greatly appreciated. I walked towards the door, but before I reached it, I felt a hand tap me on the shoulder. I turned around, and facing me was a younger woman, eyebrows furrowed in a frown. She started saying words, but they didn't form sentences. Chance taken, taken, chance, vandal, vandor, van back, she said. She was looking my way, but I don't think she was talking to me. Jeanette rushed over with another woman who looked like a doctor. Sorry about that, the doctor said, Jeanette leading the patient away. This is Kara. She's one of our new patients. She's had some stress-induced illnesses, and we're taking care of her promptly. You must be Mr. Riley. I heard we were giving you a short tour here. I'm Dr. Isabel Gruff, head psychologist here at the Institute. Whatever your brother is going through, I think we could really help. I nodded my head. Thanks, Dr. Gruff. With everything I've seen so far, I think this might be a really good fit for my brother. You can call me Isabel, she said, and I think the Institute will be a wonderful fit for your brother. Let us know what your decision is. I hope I see you again soon. If you'll excuse me, we have to go tend to the patient if you could kindly see yourself out. Okay, sounds good, I said. I knew my time was running out, and I had one question I was itching to ask. Hold on, doctor, uh, one more thing. I heard the news about your escaped patient today, and I was wondering if I could see him. I don't want the same happening to my brother after all, if you don't mind me saying it. Her friendly smile immediately dropped from her face. Sir, I'm asking you to kindly exit the premises. We don't disclose personal information, the patient that escaped was an anomaly, and that will never happen again. Now, please can you see yourself out? I knew that refusing to leave would just make a bigger fuss. I got everything I could from her. I followed her instructions and took my belongings as I exited the building. But I was intrigued by something else they said earlier. Kara. The Luna Brothers' sister? It might have just been another woman, but it's not that common of a name. The pictures in the Luna's apartment seemed to be taken years ago, but the woman in the picture and the woman I saw today weren't 
completely different. I walked to my car and closed the door, but I didn't start the engine. Something about what this car had said stuck with me. Vandal? Van Door? Van Back? Was she trying to say something to me? Van Back. Back of Van. As I thought what all of this meant, I looked up and saw something through the woods. It was like in a movie, where the character discovers something at the exact right moment in a fluke of deus ex machina. There was another road, coming from the back of the institute. Or, maybe, leading to it. Why would there be a back road to this place? My gaze followed the path of the road until I turned my body fully around to see that the path met with the main road behind a fallen tree and some neatly trimmed hedges. What was it for? I needed to see it for myself. I would have run to the back of the building, but in broad daylight with all of these people here, I could be caught snooping around a privately owned psychology institute and I'd have to pay a serious price. If I wanted to unearth more about this place, I'd have to come back at night. Van Door? Van Back? Something was definitely up here. I was going to report my findings about all that I'd seen to Chief, and then I was going to find out what was really happening at Prosperity, later in the cover of darkness. As I walked into the department, I was nervous again. What if all of this was just useless to the case? Without evidence, I didn't really see how I could convince the chief that all of this happened. This guy was my idol. What if all of my work just made him resent me more? Turns out I was worried for nothing. As I reached chief's office, the room was dark and the door was locked. He shouldn't have been anywhere, maybe he was on break or a different case? Then I figured that there was no reason to tell him about the findings anyways. I just needed to solve this case, or at the very least, find some concrete evidence against someone. It was getting dark, and by the time I was outside, gray clouds rolled across the sky. I figured that if I left right then for the institute, it would be dark enough for me to follow the road and inspect the outside of the building. It looked like it would be raining too, all the better to conceal my footsteps. I pulled up to the institute in the dark, stopping 200 feet from the entrance with my headlights off. I walked silent but fast. The crunch of the leaves were drowned out by the hiss of the rain. I moved past the bright side lights of the institute, sharp enough to cut through the darkness but not enough to reach me. I circled around to the side of the building where the lights weren't as bright and no one was around to see me. Or so I thought. I heard a scraping noise below me. I stepped back and dove behind a fallen tree. A figure emerged from where I was standing not ten seconds before and darted into the pitch black woods. After another minute, I got up and approached the ground. A large metal trap door sat slightly ajar. I lifted the handle and it creaked as the earth opened up into a mossy stone staircase. I took one step into the crypt and strained my ears. I thought I heard a voice, and it was familiar. Then, mid-step, two hands pulled me off my feet and onto the muddy forest floor. Before I could get a word in, it spoke. I'm not here to hurt you, it said. I know what happened to the Luna Brothers. The Eyes, an audio mystery podcast. Written, recorded, composed, and produced by Ethan Lex. 
Follow us on Instagram at the underscore eyes underscore podcast for news and updates. This podcast belongs to Quandary Creative, a collection of the best podcasts around. Thank you for listening.